Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. I hope at this moment in time, people realize they have the power to change things. We are all shaped by things that happen in our life. What I learned growing up is that while you may have very large negative influences around you, they don't have to define you. Early in my life, when my father abandoned my family, my mother found herself without an education and a job. My mother went back to community college, got a little bit of education, and got a decent job. She said, I'm going to do something about this, and this is not how this story is going to end. So I saw, hey, no matter how bad it gets, there is always a way forward. I went to university back in the 70s, so at that time you wouldn't have found that many women in engineering. Engineering is really just problem solving, and if you want to do anything meaningful in your life, on a micro scale or a macro scale, you are going to solve a problem, and there are a lot of problems out there. I never started out to be CEO. I just tried to learn as much as I could, and I thought that would always be my ticket to the next thing. I asked lots of questions over and over and over, always willing. I just like a sponge to learn. And in fact, that would be when I hire someone today, I want someone with a great propensity to learn and somebody who just wants to be curious, curious, curious. I never planned to write a book. And then as I started to step down from IBM, a lot of people would say, gosh, you've got to share your experience. I really wanted to share the things that someone could benefit and learn from. They're really all in the aim of showing people how to do things in a really positive way. I believe good power is a choice available to each of us. It acknowledges that the world is full of tensions, it's polarized, divided, but it focuses on how to make progress. And I want people to believe like there's hope. I certainly did not define good power and then go lead with it. It really is a concept that came clear to me when I looked back and said, what were the things I saw or that I learned to do that I really admired from other people and that I am in really the sum part of all of them because what I saw was the ability to make really hard things happen, but they are done in a positive way. They're done with both your head and your heart. After reading this book, what I hope young professionals get from it is that even though you're starting on your career, it'll be a journey with a lot of pivots, but you have the ability to make big change happen. I hope there's something in it for anybody who wants to drive some societal change. I want them to believe they can and leave an impact, whether it's in your home, your community, but also in the world. Because how you do something might be your greatest legacy. Sorry to put you through that commercial. <laughs> I'm sort of embarrassed by that. And I also just had my knee replaced. So otherwise, I'm, <laughs> that's what that's for. Yeah, I know. I'm like, well, that was enough, wasn't it? You yeah, I think that's, you got all you we need got, to know. We got it all. We yeah. got the, uh, you know. Uh, anyway, thank you for joining us. Um, thank you for not wearing red. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's right. I'm, I'm Laura Seidel. And, um, you know, I'm the former digital culture correspondent of NPR. And these days I'm doing a, a lot more independent writing. Um, and um, it's a pleasure to have uh, Ginny Rametti here uh, in person. 
She is the former CEO of IBM and the author of her new book, Good Power, Leading Positive Change in Our Lives, Work, and World. She is the first woman to ever lead IBM, and Rometty led a major transformation of the company, uh, creating a $25 billion hybrid cloud business, expanding into areas like artificial intelligence, and Ginny has been named one of the most influential people in the world uh, by Bloomberg and one of the most important people in tech by Time magazine. And uh, Laura Seidel uh, also thinks she's one of the most important people in tech. Today. Um, today, yes. In this hour. <laughs> a quick reminder uh, to our audience, once again, please turn off your cell phones. Uh, if you are here in the theater, we don't want to hear you. We want to hear Ginny. Um, and um, if you have a question, write it on a card. They should be there at your seats. Um, and if you're watching us online, again, you can uh, leave questions in the chat text on YouTube. And uh, we'll get to your questions later. Okay, that was a mouthful. Uh, you know, you, you brought this up there. You start the book in a, in a very personal way and um, very vulnerable, moving way, talking about, you know, um, uh, even hearing your father say as he was leaving your mother, I don't care if you work on the street. I don't care what happens to you. Um, why did you actually feel it was important to begin the book uh, with that very personal story? Yeah. I actually didn't start there, but that's where I ended up starting the book. Um, mm -hmm. And in, it's maybe even worth a second on, I actually was never going to write a book. And I used to even make fun of people. I'd say, oh, if I ever wrote something, it'd be a pamphlet. I mean, I was really <laughs> not. And um, And then as people said, hey, look, you've, to your point, had such an interesting journey, there's yeah. a lot maybe that you could share. So then I started to write about something I hope we'll talk about, which is skills first. So before we come back yeah, to we, your we, question, we, no, no, we that's actually will. what I started to write a book about. And I was full of data studies and they're like, this is, you know, no one's going to read it. And um, I said, <laughs> okay. They're like, but like, how did you get there? So now I'll answer your question. Yeah. Like, so how did I end up to where I am today? This work I do around um, bringing people without four-year college degrees into good family-sustaining jobs, and we'll come back to it. Yeah, and no, so, Jeff, it's on the list. <laughs> I, I mean, I think it's one of the most important things for the country right now, and many countries. But anyways, so I start there because it's, at one point I would sometimes shorthand, this was a story about my father. No, it's a story about my mother, actually. Yeah. And not that she's a victim. And my Great grandma and grandma both suffered big tragedies, different ones, and survived them. And I start there because to so my mom, when my father says that, and I overhear the whole conversation, and he says he not only cares if he doesn't care about her, he doesn't care about any of us. And I have four brothers, total three of us, or four of us. And, um, but my mom never cried. I watched her just turn around and walk away. But what would follow in the days and months and years ahead, uh, she had had no education. She had had um, no job outside the home. And, but she was so determined not to be a victim. So when my mom had nothing, she had the power to change that situation. And that's what I will always remember. And that's mm -hmm. this idea of good power. Sometimes it's just as an individual. And that, I mean, again, backed into that thought. And that's why the book goes in a sort of a section of the power of me us as individuals, we, when we start to care about somebody else, and us, when you maybe can start to change society. And so when she couldn't do anything else, she got a little better job, then a little better job. 
Um, we would get off of food stamps. We would get off of financial aid. We almost lost our house. It was so ironic. My great grandma, who worked as a cleaning woman in the Wrigley building in Chicago, if you've ever been there, third shift, because she didn't speak English. And, you know, for Christmas, we would get a package of gum from Wrigley Gum. Yeah. She took all her money she saved and put them into U.S. savings bonds. And it's so ironic that one day when my mom would be without a car, almost without a house, it would be those savings bonds that would save my mom. And to me, I don't think this is a lost era. And I don't think it's, you and I were talking about this. It's just, are we a product of another time? I mean, it just taught me that hard work still does matter, actually. And both of them did hard work and things got a little bit better. Not perfect, right? Right. And and my mom taught me, no one should define who you are, but you. And I think, I assume, I can't see everybody, but I assume they would agree with that, right? I mean, she wasn't going to let my dad define her as a victim of some sort, and she didn't tolerate it. And the last point I'll say, long answer to your question, was that, <laughs> sorry about right. that, was it would plant that very first seed in my head that access and aptitude were not the same. Meaning, like my mom wasn't, she was smart, actually. She just hadn't had access to anything beyond high school. I mean, she was a kid having a kid when I was born. And so I, that that will play through to this day then, my belief about people. Yeah, I was, because the other thing I was going to follow up and say, you know, do you think that experience has had an impact on the kind of leader that well, you without have a been doubt. throughout? I mean, moving up management and how you have handled people and looked at people. Yeah, without a doubt, because I thought, you know, people could have stereotyped my mom for a lot of things. And that didn't happen. And I thought, actually, my mom's pretty smart. But again, she just didn't have access to a good school. She didn't have access to college. She didn't have any of that. And, you know, I think it's pretty evenly distributed in the world, actually. Yes. <laughs> you know, I mean, for all of us. And I feel really bad that and there are things we can do to bring more people into the workforce again, which we'll come back to. But that would color how I would look at skills. And it would be funny. It would color my view about apprenticeships, you know, kind of learning on the job. Yeah, I would fall into that trap, and it would also it would also in a really weird way. You and I were talking about being women in a in male dominated right. industries, because I always knew I was going to be um, focused on because you were the only person, you know. So you raise your hand, and it would make me study more and more and more. And part of why I studied me and my brothers and sisters is like well, my mom had enough trouble; she did not need us to cause more trouble, right? You know, so mm. we had to be behaved. At least that's how we internalize the situation, right? So you had to study. Because by the way, my mom didn't tell us to study. She'd be like, we'd be like, mom, give us our words. And she's like, oh, I'm so tired. You know, like, can you give them to yourselves? And so, you know, and I have great empathy for that, right? Now yeah. I have great empathy for it. At the time, I'm like, well, now I got to give him his words. You know, this is not fun. But well, you also, I mean, uh, you know, well, I, I'm going to ask this in a minute, but, you know, the, the obvious is you are a woman. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. That, that is that that we take that you know and, and at face value <laughs> we'll take that at face value here um and even if you preferred people along the way to just judge you by your skills you know as you rose up i mean you end up getting put in a position as being a representative of yeah. you know a, a woman who's made it um and I, I wondered you know how does it how has it felt along the way to be you know a woman, you know, and they're going to do it. It's like, you're not just the CEO, you're a woman and CEO. Um, to be in that kind of spotlight and the kind of pressure in a way, perhaps when you suddenly stand out 
as the only woman in the room. Yeah, but I'm going to ask you the same question in a second, you know. <laughs> um, but for everyone, this to me is such an interesting point because I went my whole career not wanting to talk about it and saying yeah. to people, please, I don't, I didn't belong to women's groups. I didn't do any, I said, just, you know, recognize me for what I do. Um, yeah, I want to do my work, be recognized for my work. I do not want this to happen. And even when I became CEO, um, and this is now 2012, everyone said to me, do not do a single interview. They will define you as a woman. Every headline was first woman, first woman, first woman. And as Fortune 19 company, first woman. And right. do not do it, do not do it. But I, but I would come to learn that lesson again of if you don't define yourself, someone else does. And it is a dangerous thing in this world. And so I, but I felt that pressure. But, but I, I, I want to back up to like one story and then link it to today when you say, how does that feel? So I felt like, no, don't, don't have that discussion with anybody. So right. I really didn't. But it's funny, the little funny stories that stick in your head. I was maybe 15 years in or so like this, and I was giving a presentation. It was down in Australia. And I write about it in the book. And I, I, it's on financial services, okay? So it's one of the industries I know a lot about. And uh, a man comes up to me. I think he's going to tell me like what a riveting like presentation and like wants to ask me some technical question. And he comes up and he says, I wish my daughter had seen this. And I thought to myself in the moment, and this is now how, how I've become to feel about the topic. I thought, you know what? This isn't really about me. Honestly, it, it back to this power of we, as you start to care more about than yourself, the other things, I'm like, if people can't be what they cannot see. so. I maybe need to start embracing this idea that we're all role models of some kind, everybody here uh, for someone. It's a very hard thing to come to terms with. I, I, no, I, I get that. I mean, you know, when I started covering you- There were, were no you, men in this, in, I'm women in this industry. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's so, you know, it does, it does stand out, you know. I mean, it's why, you know, back when I was covering Marissa Meyer and she got so, so much attention because it is a rarity and people are going, going to look to you. But it brings me to another question that I'm just kind of really interested in what you have to say about it. I, while, you know, I see women and men as both being equally capable, I do sometimes wonder if women bring something different to leadership roles for men. And if you've, or if you think that's an even an unfair question, but I notice things in the way you describe your management style. I know. I that know. made me think, well, like you, you quote, I think a, a relative who said, you know, well, God gave us uh, two ears and one mouth for a reason, the, the idea of listening. I mean, it just things like, I couldn't help but wonder if it would think about it, that. So this is, a, this is a very excellent, excellent question. We should both talk about it and maybe in the questions here, because someone even said to me yesterday, why is it that it's always women trying to write books about leading in a different way? And he named off these other books and I said, you know, I understand it. And, 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 and part of why the book ended up being called Good Powers because so many people kept saying, so negative power examples. And when I would talk to many young people, they'd say, well, I said, would you want to be powerful? They're like, oh no, I, I want to change the world. I'm like, okay, well, I, ironically, you need power to do that. Yeah. It, but, it, but, but it doesn't have to be the kind you think is so bad. And this is kind of what backed up into this point. And so what are the attributes of good power? I, I will tell you like, this is not academic, okay? Because the whole book is a memoir with purpose. Like, it's not everything about me because that would bore you even more. It is, <laughs> I tried to tell stories that someone would learn from. Otherwise, I don't know why people write a book. Like, I didn't, there was no other, honest to God, no other reason to this. And so 
and it was super hard for me to do, to tell mm. personal things, because I spent a lifetime not talking about them. And so um, I tried to tell those stories. Now, good power. I'll tell you the kind of the theme in the, in the book of how I describe it, and then I want to link it back exactly to okay. what you asked me about, you know, do women have these characteristics or something like that? And I described it at a high level saying, when you do hard things in a good way, it means that you embrace tension. You don't run from it. That is something I really, I think is a really important notion. I, I, it, was, it was almost, you know, it was almost- I learned Buddhist, to love it. You know, sort of sitting with discomfort. There's yes. like a whole, you know what I mean? There's uh, philosophical, you sit with discomfort. The book was almost and, called and Growth and Comfort it. Do Not Coexist. Yes. Okay. You know? And um, probably would have been a better, better title, but um, that idea, it, you embrace tension, don't run from it. Um, and that the second thing is you do it with respect. And the third is that you celebrate progress, not perfection. In total, I think, if you do those things, the world is so polarized and divided, it, you can never find and make progress. Everybody's fighting for their end of perfect, and in the meantime, nothing happens. Yeah. And I, unfortunately, had to go through some really tough stuff that I'll just have to make a step at a time, right? And like how I watched my mom make a step at a time. And then all of a sudden, you look back, and you're like, wow, I've actually gotten a lot done. And so, now back to, is that a female thing? And even I described one client once saying to me, got a velvet hammer. Now, I thought to myself, would he say that to a man, that he's got a velvet hammer? The guy probably be insulted by that. Not, yeah. You're probably not. Like, here, I'm, 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 I'm happy about my velvet hammer, you know? So, um, but, but my point now is, I think, well, what do, you know, I ask people, what kind of leaders do you like? Do you know Paul Pullman, who ran Unilever? No. Did you ever interview? Okay. Uh -uh. And he started this big net zero. Paul's big environmentalist person. Now, that's what he's chosen to do is yeah. giving back. And so Paul's done the survey, 5,000 millennials, and what do you want in your leaders? And as I recall, top characteristics are authenticity and that they want them to not necessarily speak out on more issues, but, you know, like be aware and mm -hmm. authentic about furthering, you know, societal good, which by the way, to me, they sit at the, you know, people focus on what sits at the intersection, what's good for their business and society. And, and usually if you sit there, right. that's a good place to be. Yeah. Um, so that's okay with that, but that they want people who are authentic in the way that they lead. And some of the characteristics were collaborative, okay? They would lead with empathy, okay? Problem solving. And, and someone once said to me, well, those are very feminine traits. Now, one thing, one, that's one, not that I say women, right? I mean, men no, can have feminine traits too, right? Absolutely. And so I think we get all jumbled up on this topic of, is it mean, it's, is it women or is it... I, I don't know, again, I can't see everybody right now. We'll talk in the Q&A. Do you think, I mean, I do think there's a generation uh -huh. looking for that kind of leadership, right? That Oh, I, I, I think so. I mean, you, you do talk about how, uh, in the book, I sort of remember you talking about that very hierarchical kind of way, you know, as being less effective. Yes. And I think people do think of that as being a more masculine way to, to lead. Well, and part of why I say it's less effective, here, this is a really important distinction. It's effective for short periods of time and in right. bursts. Problem is so many of the issues the world has right now are not like little tiny no. issues. That's to me very different of time right now that we're working on really big problems. You know, like I even say like, oh, it's like systems thinking because they're all these interrelated. You're never making anybody happy and they're all connected together. It's a little bit of why I think it's more important now is the yeah. complexity of the problems. No, that's true. Well, and also I think I, I do wonder, you know, running um, a company like IBM, you also have to be beholden to shareholders in the quarterly reports. Of course and you so do. that's a lot of pressure to both be thinking long term, as you say, and also to be. Yeah, actually, I, I, I try. Look, I 
you haven't probably read the book yet, but I, I tried to fill it up with like tools, practical yeah, tools, you know? Yeah. And on that point about embracing tension, the one I tried to give people is to say, there are a lot of times, I always used to say, no offense to, you know, writers and politicians <laughs> get to live in a black and white world. Like I don't in that it means sometimes when the choice is X or Y, neither are good. Often. I mean, I mean, there were like many, I don't know how you feel, many situations I had when X or Y were not good in that you had to Life. sit in it. And I, my idea, my practical tool is don't come up with a compromise. Sometimes you have to sit in the junk long enough to come up with a third way through the problem. And I, and I do tell the story of IBM and semiconductors. IBM birthed the industry, but there came a time when we needed them, but in a much smaller amount, very high-powered ones. Yeah, this is a very, this is an interesting story. I'll tell you, I interviewed Andy Grove oh. and Gordon Moore, <laughs> who have a, another story when they got out of the memory business, and I thought this story, you know, when they made this big switch at Intel, which meant they were going to have to lay people off and all this, and how hard it was to make that decision, and I thought, oh, this is a similar thing. You took something that IBM was really known for, and I can't imagine how hard it must be to know when you make a, dis a big decision like that, we're, we're going to get out of, you know, making these chips. And that means a lot of jobs are going to go. And how you even deal with making a decision like that as a leader who also wants to be empathetic. Yes. And, and so you're right, because I had no good answer. A new chip. Now, that, now people kind of widely understand this problem with the CHIPS Act yeah, and I mean, everything you might else. explain a little bit more. Uh, Only teaches that Just I, so people understand a little bit more here about IBM's history what, is really the first one that commercialized semiconductors. Okay, now you have I mean, your, your chips, your phones, everything electronics got a chip in it now. But there are also very high power chips that would be in the high end sort of computers that we make. And so at a time, everything was high end. But now that's not true, right? There's a lot of these chips got to be in volume that are in cell phones and the like. So we did the research, the development, and we made them. To build one of those factories, 10 to $20 billion. And every time you move to a new generation, you have to retool and build a new one. And that's why you hear all this discussion about the CHIPS Act and all these things in this country. And at the time, here, when I step in, Cloud's already taken off, data, mobile, social is all happening. And we had a great fit for the past, not the future. So I had to put a lot of money into hybrid cloud and AI, and I have these chips that need another generation. Well, the next 10 to 20 billion has to go over here. Yet, yet these systems that those chips go in, they run the banks of the world to this day, the banks, the telecom, there's every banking transaction goes through them. And I said, okay, I got shareholders are like, get rid of it. And I got clients like, I've trusted you for 100 years. Okay, if you stop, what am I going to do? I had no good answer here of what to do. If I stayed with it, I couldn't fund the future. If I let go of it, I've ticked off every client in the world. And so what it, the ending of the story, when I say find a third way, and I only tell it to be, you don't have to be a technician, I think, yeah. um, illustratively is that I had to get a lot of people to bang heads over a lot of time over, I've said, guys, Okay, where we sit is not tenable. Now, we had to sit there for a long time, so the money's popping into that every quarter statement, all the losses, one after another. And I said, so what they ended up coming up with, and it was a really great answer, they said, okay, we got to relook at how we make these chips, even though we've done it this way for 60 years. We are now going to do, we're going to redo how they're manufactured so the research and development can be done, 
and we can get a partner to do manufacturing. See, when you've always done all three of those steps together, you, you can think of this how anything you do at home even. You're like, okay, I had this idea here. Oh, it's not quite right. I'll fix it in the very end, okay? But when you're having a partner do it, you better be right up front because there's no tweaking down here in the end. These are coming off of somebody else's factory floor. So in the end, what sounds like a simple thing to describe to you, we revamped the manufacturing process so that R&D we kept and the manufacturing was done by a partner. And of course, then you have all the politics, right? You can't have it done by a country. So many of these chips go to the government. They have to be U.S. approved. I, I could tell you a million stories on that. So, but anyways... This is not a chip discussion. But, but, it, um, but it, it is a situation It's an where... idea. We sold, some would say, we, as one of my colleagues, I think I put it in the book, mm -hmm. he said, we sold the present to save the future. Yeah. And, and that's what we ended up doing. And, and now to this day, what's really valuable is that we kept all the R&D and that's what the country needs. It'll, I hope it'll be one of the centers that'll be the high-tech centers for the Chips Act. Yeah, no, but these, I mean, as you said, it's a great Again, situation. I always would say my successors will benefit. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I want to get on to the, the issue of diversity because this is something that um, I think was important to you, um, uh, both because of your background. Um, but I, I actually want to start with you. You put a lot of effort into that. And the first question I want to ask you, while certainly morally diversity is the right thing to do, I'd love to have you discuss why, from a business perspective, yeah. you, you also thought, you know, we need to diversify our workforce. We need to bring in different kinds of people. You know, th this is a, a super good question. I have, like, always believed, and there is data that will support this, but that the most diverse workforce and inclusive produces the best product. So I always say when people want to talk to me about diversity, first off, I go, diversity is a number, inclusion is a choice. And it's a choice you have to make like time and time again in so many ways. Um, it's not one thing. And when I talk to a lot of firms that struggle on this, I'm like, you don't actually authentically believe you're going to be better, do you? I mean, it, it really does start there that you got to find and dig deep down why you think there's a good business reason for it. Because if it is only altruism, your actions will never be right. It, 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 does exactly. that make sense? No, I mean, it, I just it, it does. And I'm curious. I mean, can you think of any situations where you really saw like, oh, I'm glad we had a diverse team on this? Oh yes. I, I mean, look, <clears> I think <throat> I think all of us read about in the paper facial recognition. Yes. Okay. So why did the did the stuff get built in a way that it did not recognize colored, you know, faces yep. of color, people of color? Well, the team never thought to test that way. They were all white. And so you know, I'm, I'm grossly generalizing to make a point, yeah. right? Um, oh, interesting. And so then I've often watched when the team is too much like they completely have blind spots, right? Yeah. And they don't ask the different questions. So I have authentically believed this for a very long time that the better teams were the ones that were the most diverse. I've, I've, I've watched it. We have the data to prove it on which products got developed better and the like. So it wasn't just altruism, right? That this is the right thing to do. That's a good reason too. I mean, I'm not saying that's not bad. That yeah, morally, no, like we all morally believe that we want to be treated fairly. But I, I said, this is also good, which is why all my work now about hiring people with skills, not just degrees. Um, I was on CNBC and Jim Cramer says to me, don't you worry? And he, he's a big supporter of it. Yeah, huge, by yeah. the way. But he says, you know, the shareholders say, why are you fussing over this? And I'm like, no, no. I'm like, I need good employees. Okay. This is a path to outstanding employees. So this isn't just about yeah. one thing. And I just, it, no. And I also said, hey, by the way, because one of my biggest worries, there's a whole part in the book, as you know, on good tech is that 
the, the digital have and have not in the world's dividing of yes. people who think there's a better future because of tech and people who think there's not a better future because of tech, right? Absolutely. And I'm very worried about that. And I said, if society turns, this is not good on any of us, right? No, no. This is no, bad. It, it isn't. I, I it's also, just a matter of your timeline, right? It, it, it's true. I wanted, I, one thing, I want to let you tell this story no, only no. because this is a diversity story, which I think shows um, how important you hold it. You had a transgender employee who emailed you one day. Yeah. This yeah. was when the whole bathroom bill in North Carolina was happening back in 2016. Yeah. yeah it was North and Carolina said, and Texas. And said, I'm worried about going on a business trip to yeah. uh, It was North Texas Canada. at the time they were talking about going to. And it, was, it was Texas. I thought yeah. it was North Carolina. Yeah, both. Both. I had, I was, okay. And I'm probably the biggest. It was the biggest employer in both places, you yeah. know, both states, or one of the biggest employers in both states. And you felt it was important. Enough to, yeah. To so step this, in. it's a good, and I and I tell that story about the bathroom bills, and people said like, don't talk about that because there's people on both sides of this discussion, yeah. and I said that's not the reason I'm telling the story. Like, there are a couple things I hold dear to talk about: trust, inclusion, and how to prepare society to think it can do well with technology. And so I would tell the workforce because I had to tell them like they're like, speak out on this and speak out on that. When you had a workforce a size of ours, there was 50% of people on every side of every argument, right? right? And so I would say to people, I can't, but I'll tell you the things that I think are most important to us, and these are the things I will really actively go at. And that I picked. I couldn't do everything in diversity, but to me, what the employees were saying was, I can't be myself at I'm, if I'm at work. I, I, I I'm don't quote feel you. that. I quote what, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, I don't even remember what I, I said. This was a really uh, good quote. You said, we are our best selves when we are our true selves. Um, and I, I think, you know, you're, here you're talking about the fact that, yeah, you don't want people to be burdened by this. So they, get, they, want, they want to get their and work And be afraid done, to come to work. Right? I, and, and that was the point. And that was like I was making, trying to make an uber point on it, right? A bigger point than just even that battle, but including that battle. So we really, and, and the other thing that I, I learned, because I never took, IBM never gives money to a lobby, never gave a pack, no way. Yeah. But what we did do was always take a stand on policies, back aligned with what I said. Policies, not politics, Right. And those policies, it can't stand it when all people do is tweet their policy or p opinion about something. I guess some, some people move the world with that, but most people don't. And I really prefer kind of like a ground war to fight these. I mean, I think you have to go do the hard work of go talk to, that, to all the senators and the representatives and show them why. Like I believed in the dreamers too, as yeah. an example, right? Yeah. And show them who these people are you're talking about, right? These are really good people in America contributing to our com com companies by no fault of their own. These are yeah. children. And, but back to bathroom bill. So we went and saw, I remember speaking to the governors. And I, and I mean, I did have to get to the point and I would find that unfortunately true with politics to say, I'll just tell you, you do that, I'll do this, okay? I mean, if passes, I won't do these things. I mean, because you do have to understand the ramifications because I think when it comes to values, there's a lines people can't cross. And so um, you and I were talking about values and the difference of companies that have been around long enough to have them deeply rooted and those that are still growing their roots. And so that to me was one of the really important, and it's why I told that story. It, it was just you know, stand it, stand, and people say, hey, would you do it today even? Well, like, this the, is a couple this years is the ago, other, right? I know, this is the other, this is 2016, and we've watched what happened with Disney in Florida, and uh, how, how should, how do you think CEOs should manage these things? Yeah, yeah. I, I would still do it again, and I would, again, 
part of, I think, what pro- not protected, but gave me kind of a, um, why I was okay doing this was I was clear what I was going to talk about, right? It wasn't like I was picking things yeah. out of the air and sometimes talking on this and not talking on something else. So that was one thing. So the workforce was fully prepared about that for the most part. You never please everyone, but um, they understood that. And so today what I see a lot of my colleagues, I spent a lot another weekend with 30 active CEOs and we have a very private discussion. People are still fighting and doing these things. They may not be as vocal right now, but I'm a believer of the doing side of it, not the vocal side anyways. So I don't see anyone changing. And you know what what I think is so encouraging? I see so many companies like with the environment now, way more than back then, but they have really put it at the center of like why it's also important to their business. Because if it's also important to their business, they will stay with it. See, this is what I always, I was always looking for if they really could connect it to the business. And many of them now, really do realize doing these things that are environmentally correct is actually better for their business. And that's what gives it staying power. I mean, there's a, there's a saying that might've been Steve Jobs who came up with this originally, you know, you can do well by doing good. Yeah, someone did. I agree. I, I, right, I, I know, know, but it is, it is true. Not on everything, but, no, on, but on the but big in, things like this, you can, you, you can, you can make a difference. Um, you know, um, speaking of power, let's get to this idea. So you talk about, I mean, this is perhaps a good example of what you would talk about as good power, which, yes. you know, mm-hmm. is the name of your book. What exactly, what do you mean? Is that an example? I think it probably is, but what, why did you come up with this term good power? Yeah, because I do really want to advocate or I want people at least, I hope they could read it and they can learn that even if they're just talking about themselves in their own career, right? That they have the power to change some things, but it does require you to do those couple things I said. And I, you know, in the arc about embracing tension and running to conflict, right? Because I don't think things get changed if you don't accept conflict. And that is hard for lots of people. But I said, the more you do it, the more comfortable you get with it. And I started to learn, I mean, like the earliest conflicts are with myself. Okay. And so I would, every, I tell the story in the book, every time I would get a new job, I, I would fret and I would fret that I don't think I can do it. I don't have the skill. I cannot do it. And um, I, I really drive myself crazy and my husband and the people around me crazy. And uh, then it's maybe, it's very, maybe the first third of my career, and I'd been offered a very, I went in, a man said to me, a uh, person I work for, and he says, Jenny, I want you to, uh, I'm going to get a promotion and I think you should take my job. And I said, look, your job's way bigger. I run a third of what you run. I have not done these others. I need about two more years, I told him. And he said, I think you should go to the interview. Go to the interview. That offers me the job. And, and I say to him, may I go home and talk? I'm going to go home and talk to my husband about it. <laughs> so I go home. Husband says to me, he looks at me. And, and, and like my, you know, same husband, 43 years, I was telling Laura. He's like, do you think a man would have answered it that way? I said, no. I mean, he doesn't say much. That's like all he said to me of the whole conversation. And, uh, but and it wasn't a sexist point he was making to me. He's like, Jenny, I've seen this movie over and over. He's like, you'll get in, you will learn. Like who doesn't go into a job? They don't know everything and you'll learn it. And you got to just come to terms with this. And it's what I coined that phrase, growth and comfort never coexist. I, I did not in the moment coin it. I would later coin it because I would learn. And so this gets to this conflict point that, um, hmm. then I started to get like, 
this is good when I'm nervous, and this is really bad when I'm not nervous enough. That means either I'm getting stale or I'm not learning anything. And I would really start to like embrace things and they would get, I say ris riskier and riskier and bigger. It's like, yes, good. I'm, you know, and I was talking to someone the other day who was having a really tough, and honestly on a scale of one to 10, is a 10, I have to say, problem with work. And I was saying to the person, hey, look, I need you to start visualizing how good you are gonna be on the other end of this because you are learning so much getting through. I know in the moment, this feels really horrible. And, and you do feel like you don't get a break and nothing goes your way and you're, trying, you're out there fighting. And I'm like, I'm telling you, please believe me, there will be, and, and part of it comes from that beginning of life where I, after I saw it with my father, I'm like, well, that set the bar for bad. And as long yeah. as I have my health, my family, like nothing is that bad anymore. And, and, and I think a lot of people, if you think that way, it puts everything into perspective. And so anyways, it got me towards this accepting tension piece, which is what I keep trying to go back to in almost every part of the book about here's what the tensions were. Because like, that's life right now. You don't satisfy everybody at any time. And yeah. the long and the short, you mentioned that a second ago, right? Mm -hmm. The long term, the short term, is it, it, I mean, there was a million, the policymakers versus my employees, the customers wanted this, this guy wanted that. And I, so when I say, what is a good power? A, so much of it's about that tension piece. But I did actually kind of crystallize in retrospect a yes. set of principles that I think are super helpful. I mean, I use them today in what I'm doing. One that says, um, okay, if you really want to change something, get clear in your head who you're in service of first. Be in service of something. Do not serve it. And mm -hmm. I think there's a profound difference in those two things. You know, I, I use an example in the book. You go to a restaurant. The guy gives you, or gal gives you your food. Does that make it a nice night? Audience? No. 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 Not really. I mean, could be, maybe not, maybe that. If the, if the person says, you know, I go out of my way knowing that if you have a good evening, I'm going to get a very good tip. And they're in service of you. I mean, that's a silly small example, yeah. you know. Um, if you think that way, and I can't tell you, it takes a leap of faith to trust that if you are in service of something, in the big arc, it eventually fulfills your goals, Right. I think that's a big part of how to make change. I think the second part is, and this is very tiring, to realize you have to constantly build belief in whatever it is you're trying to change. Meaning you're trying to get people to voluntarily go to a alternate reality they had not necessarily envisioned. And that is energy. It is energy, energy, and it is, doesn't end. And I think people think, well, I've already told, I've described one reason why you should do this. Why aren't you doing it? that is just not life. I mean, yeah. I have found this build belief never ends and you got to keep approaching it. And the third thing was probably the most important to change something big about good power was everybody always wants to change everything. And that is an equally important question is what should endure. And, and even if modernized, what should endure? And honestly, I have so many examples of how I had to learn the hard way on that topic. And, um, and, 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 and you know, I, I, did. I, I'm, I, I'm looking at the time and I want to get Sorry. to some things. I could keep, no, the, the problem is I could just keep talking to you. You know, you have so many interesting stories and I really enjoyed the book and you bring up so many things, but I know there are a couple of things we really All do right. want to get go to. to so the, go to the, I'm probably and, trying to keep her away from some uh, hard ones. <laughs> I don't know. No, no. Um, you know, you, this, you know, I think everybody right now, AI is on people's minds. Yeah. You definitely pushed IBM in this direction. Um, um, I had some fun with covering Watson and, you know, uh, um, I, everybody Jeopardy. did. Yes. It was mm -hmm. a lot of fun. Uh, you know, when Watson played Jeopardy, 
Um, but you also wrote, people must believe technology will lead them to a brighter future, not a darker place. Now, when it comes to AI right now, it seems like it's a big flip. We've got chat GPT out there, you know, writing things. It probably is, we were discussing this before, going to take away some jobs. Um, and so I, I guess the question is, how do we get people when there seems like many legitimate fears? How do we prepare the groundwork so that people can actually see technology as leading to a, a brighter future? You yeah. know, if you're a writer and you're looking at ChatGPT, you're thinking, oh, there goes my job. You know? No, there's a lot of people like that right now. Yeah. And so in the book, I actually dedicate a whole chapter to something. Like I, I was telling Laura, I've tried for a decade to talk about AI ethics and, and how to steward technology in properly. It's called stewarding good tech. And there's two sides to uh, answers to your question. One, let's come back to second, which is about, I think we're entering a, a period for decades now that all of us are going to have to change our skills pretty frequently. Yeah. Frequently meaning five years, 10 years, mm -hmm. they're going to change again. The world wasn't set up that way. Our education systems aren't set up that no, way. Nothing reinforces like it. No, they don't. And, and this is a super, I mean, it, I meant what I said. The number one thing I'd hire someone for is their curiosity and willingness to learn because that means they'll be willing to change, right? And um, I'll come back to that. So that's one thing that's going to have to completely change in the world because if you, in the big arc, go back and look at every like real industrial revolution and what happened, there'd be this big technological change and then you'd see it would be delayed big societal change would have to right. happen to, in, to match it. Like I didn't realize like... High school wasn't compulsory in this country till, do you know the, the year? I don't know the year, but it's not that distant. Actually. No, it's the 20s, yeah. 1920s. And Which it was because right. when you couldn't work on a farm, well, then I guess you had to read. I mean, okay, so we had to learn something else. And it seemed to happen over and over that like there has to be a social upheaval and change that comes with some big technological thing. So it's coming. And I think it's around this issue of like people are going to have to have lifelong learning you're not going to be able to like, hey, I've learned to be this because mm, it's going to change. So put that one thing for aside. I want to come back to it. But the other thing I felt really strongly about is you got to usher these. These technologies are now powerful enough. They have to be ushered safely into the world. And safely means you better care as much about the good as the bad in parallel at the same time. There, there are a lot of people I have in my own coverage, felt like they were not thinking about the bad. There's a lot of, often a lot of idealism among people yeah. who put uh, tech out into the world and they don't want to see the bad. So how do we, how do we get that to happen? Because I, I agree with you. Even if you have to set up different teams, because this to me, it's not Pollyanna. Um, I and I'm so afraid because like AI can do good things for the world. I believe that. Look, I was really, I mean, I've spent 15 years trying to advocate it into the world. Um, but there was a lot of fear mongering going on about it, you know, killing jobs, doing everything. And I hate to see it get killed because perceptions get set so fast another way. And this is my fear with ChatGPT because um, it is a one form of AI, by the way. It's not, they're not all that way. No, okay. There's, there's so, but now people talk about it like it's AI. Right. Okay. No, no, like it's, it's all AI. But the sad thing is all these technologies mirror humanity. So it's taught by, it can be taught by just a, a closed set of information, but it's taught by the internet right now. Well, what do you think the internet mirrors? It mirrors us, humanity, good and bad is out there. So I feel strongly like right now, 
like, look, social media went on for a long time and then people started to see negatives, right? right. What if that had been done together? I, I use one example. Yes. We did quantum computing. We've been at quantum computing for decades building this yep. stuff. Quantum can open up every known form of encryption, all right? Most, almost every known form. So that means all the world's data that's being protected can be opened by quantum computers one day. I did not so know that. So we had a parallel team that worked on quantum-proof encryption. So that, and, and that now is rolling out in products right now. Because if you don't, it's like putting a safe out and then saying, oh, I'm going to come with a key that can open it. Well, then it would, you should be building a safe that no one can open at the same time with that same new key. So, we've, so we're telling clients now, start moving to this. Because guess what? Bad guys, they're going to use these computers to open up what you're sealing up today in the future, right? So wow. it's... It's well known, and my point is it's a simple good example of doing and working both sides of the equation. So what I think is the issue now, if I had to pick a big word, it is trust. We have got to build trust in this AI now before we get people too like, oh, it's bad, it's going to cost my job, it's going to do this and that. And like I do think, to your point, you and I talked about it, it is going to change some time. I think it's going to augment man. Look, we have control. We make the stuff. Well, that's what, this that's is what, what bothers we would, me. We, would we make it, right? I'm like, you use it or you make it. Those of us that make it have a greater responsibility. And therefore, we can control. I mean, we need to put leadership over this technology. How do we how do we do that? Seriously, because I think, you know, I think about our government, which it's so hard to get anything done. Yeah. And, you okay, know, so in, in practical senses, here would be things I would do. So for one thing, um, because it's really hard in government, I have empathy for this. Do you think our politicians and our voted in understand the details of technology? No, they don't. No, you and I don't. I mean, well, I would like to say I do. Okay, let's be clear. <laughs> I did run IBM. I do. But I think th that's not fair. So, you know, I know a lot of us spend a lot of time educating, right, on those topics. However, my view on AI, one thing is, should there be regulation? Yes, but I would call it precision regulation. I talk about this in the book, meaning... Right you are not going to be able to govern the technology itself. I've tried to stop technology. You can't stop it. But what you can do is say it can be used in these cases, not these cases. Like you and I, if I had my phone, we would have no qualm about facial recognition to open our phone. Does, right. it, does it bug you? Do you feel it's violating your liberties? I still, I have to You're a little you, bit I creepy. Prefer, I the thumb? Okay, fine, your thumb. No I problem, use, But your I use thumb. my thumb. I don't know why. Okay, but it's, it's still a personal work. thing. You're using it on a thumb. My, right. Okay. However, like I don't think your thumb should be used to track you in the world, right? And no. you don't think um, facial recognition should be used for racial profiling. That's you don't. Right. So I think precision regulation could govern the uses of these kinds of technologies, meaning yeah. try to govern how it's used and where is one thing. Next thing. God, I wish just to set a, an example when chat came out, I would have loved in parallel because it can tell you facts that are not true. And it sounds like he's very smart and she is true, right? They call that, they give the name hallucination, right? And yeah. so, um, like I asked it, okay, who is Mark Rometty? That's my husband. And uh, it came back with a glorious description of what he did to transform IBM. And uh, he, <laughs> honest to God, and he said, well, finally I get the credit I deserve. And, but I'm like, that's not, and then I asked about myself, I get the same answer back. I'm like, but you would have believed it if you didn't know anything, you would have believed the first answer. And hysterical. so, now, what would I, I would have loved to see, because you and I were talking about educators a minute ago, right, yeah. out there, and something a little simple, and there's some, there's many people off building these right now, by the way, but that would have said, hey, if the paper's turned in, you can run this app, and it'll tell you with some degree of confidence, chat probably wrote that thing. 
And so, I know. It's, I mean, yeah. it's, it, but it would have at least like sent a signal to the man, to the world that, hey, we recognize this is not all, we need people to learn how to write and, you know, to do logic. It would have shown some care. And there's discussions about watermarking that this was chat created. And so there's, and people understanding how it's actually trained. And there's other AI you could train with with a closed set of data so you don't have bad stuff in it, right? Yeah. And then the other thing I learned, if I can just, I could go on for all in this. One I know, more, and I'm going to stop I won't. you because I want to get to your favorite My one topic. other example is that, okay, oh yeah, 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 never mind, go ahead. Yeah, My favorite so I'm going to get to your favorite topic talk more. here, <laughs> which is skills-based recruiting. Um, and because um, we live in a world right now, one of the things that seems to really be dividing our country is the difference between those who have a college degree yeah. and those who do not. And you actually implemented policies at IBM that recognize that a college degree is not necessarily the thing as an employer you need to be looking for there, right? right? And this yeah. is really interesting. Yeah. So thank you for taking me off my AI soapbox Because I could go on yeah. and I'm so uh, yeah, fascinated we should have fun together on that. Say, but I know so, you want to talk about But there, I have hope that this will be guided in safely. Okay. Back, one more last thing on AI, though, if I'm like, just one more. <laughs> I am reminded, I just read this, um, Henry Kissinger had a quote, and he said, history, we should learn from history. When people do not understand something, they fear it or revolt. And I'll leave it at that. So um, back to this. This is, I hope, and I, you know, maybe I have an audience that's all college grad, and, and I am a vice chair, one of the vice chairs at Northwestern. So I believe, please, I believe in a four-year degree, but this is a bigger point. And remember my mom's story. Life would go on. When I first became CEO, um, I'm out looking for cyber people. Now, cyber is fairly new, really, as an industry then, and can't find them anywhere. It is true coincidence. I walk into another meeting, uh, my next meeting, and it's on corporate social responsibility. And it's about one school that we are in Brooklyn in a very uh, poor side of town. And we have given them help on a curriculum, community college. The kids can get an associate degree in high school at the same time. There's called dual enrollments in some places in the country. Um, we give them mentors electronically. And, and oh, we're going to give them a chance at a job. I said, oh, okay. Well, this goes on. We hire some people. They start doing pretty well. Now, we can't find these people to hire anyways. They're not trained out in the world. Hire more and more. And then I say, it dawns on me, we start studying the results. I say, I think we have just unlocked like a new talent pool. By the way, they're 95% black and Hispanic. Back to my point on inclusion. Now, by no fault of their own about access to education and where they happen to live. And I said, okay, I think actually we have discovered something here. Okay. And we, I will, you can read the book for the whole journey of how I would learn to get people to accept this, because that in itself is an interesting story of getting people to put their biases down. And um, first we do it for ourselves. Then we start, I say, let's see if we can get more of these. These are just public schools. Back to my point of anybody can change this world. I, I mean, when you're focused on what it's for, I think you and I would all say we should be a, paid for our skills. I mean, what's wrong with that? And promoted and all of that. So Fast forward, these six-year high school programs, there's now 300 around the world in 27 countries and 150,000 kids coming through. But that's just one little program. I'm like, that, that's not going to change the world, by the way. But I start with my friends and colleagues on this point. I'm like, guys, guys, there is this new pool here, okay? But you're going to have to change how you hire. Because when the next year would come and I would go to 
I'm in another meeting and I say, well, have you hired any of those, those kids? You need these skills. And they're like, no. I'm like, well, if somebody find out why they're not hiring them. They're like, well, they all, every job rec we have requires a college degree. I said, really? So thank God I had an HR team that was really behind all of this and business people because you need the line to believe it. And they said, I said, start looking at those job requisitions. Let's start rewriting them for skills. Take out these degrees. Okay, fast forward a decade, took five years to do it. We would go from 100, almost 100% hiring for PhDs, college grads, et cetera, to 50%, meaning having to, having to require that to start. Doesn't mean if you go on, and by the way, lo and behold, 75% of those people went on. I mean, it's a, it's a, this is to me just so typical of the misconceptions. Well, you didn't you even put was it Delta or somebody you could Yeah. Oh, not just the, Delta. So now uh, I've gone on. Yeah. I, I got everybody I'm working on. This is yeah, a movement. This, we're I mean, make. this is you know, but this is so important it's right so, now. It's like we all need good people, and this is and so, a college degree doesn't necessarily. No. I mean, this is what so you, it you did not. It turned pilot, to be not right? productive. Was, yeah, Delta. Just, I talk about because it's because I think it's something we all can visualize. And Ed would say it was the last place of a, a really white male bastion of – Ed Bastion is his name. I didn't mean that bastion, but the of that was who all, mostly pilots were. And they took the four-year degree off. It, and I always have to caution. This does not mean your pilot doesn't know how to fly and didn't get – he they get it another way. And, and then Ed finishes out their training, and he had like a 1,000 diverse pilot applications that day. And many companies like that, like a Delta, they hire – very diverse workforce at the beginning of the funnel. And then their focus now is on moving them through because they're there to start. Now, how do you skills-based move them through a company? And so this becomes really a skills-based culture for everybody, not just about one little niche. And a lot of, so the other big, um, if I might, really sort of crescendo moment that I feel brought this. So this goes on and I work on this with all my colleagues in the business roundtable, and many start working on this problem and doing the same thing. Because by and large, we find, I'm gonna generalize, half of the good jobs, meaning family of four, good job, could sustain a family of four, half of them are over-credentialed. It just became easy for people to say, ask for a college degree. And, and, and it does change HR. It's, I mean, like, no, no, you gotta focus on building talent, not buying it. Off this the is, I mean, it, you it's know, common sense it, when it, you say it, isn't it? No, it? it really is. And of course, your background, I mean, coming full circle, because well, I'm going to take I know now I know why here. I do this, right? <laughs> right, because, yeah, because this is why the story about your mother is That's so why important I start and there. how your personal experience really feeds into the kind it's of It's how I ended. Work. And this is like, like, I think for all of us, sometimes we have to look back to look forward. And if we look yeah. back, you know why you do what you do today, you know? And yeah. so I'm, I, I then went on when George Floyd was murdered. My colleagues, some of the, I think they're the most respected uh, black leaders in the country, yeah. business leaders, Ken Chenault ran American Express, uh, Ken Frazier ran Merck. Um, they both said, hey, quit tweeting, quit doing. Guys, we should do what business does best and hire people. That is the best thing we can do about systemic racism. I, and I'm a believer. Economic opportunity is the greatest equalizer out there. And so those guys started, and I'm like, hmm. They know the what to do. I think I know how to do this because you will be stunned. I was stunned. And, and this is true around the world. Developed, even developed countries en masse, 65% people do not have a college degree. This country, 65. So for all our rhetoric, 65% do not have a college degree still. Of black Americans, its approach is 80. Wow. So for those of us that think that people are going to see a better future to your question, 
what are we going to wait for them all to get a college degree? And it's not necessary. So I am so, you can tell, very enthusiastic. And there are about 100 other companies in the country that have joined our, we formed a nonprofit called 110, 1 million black employees in 10 years. And for those who say, oh, you're being woke, you're only doing one thing, we're like, no, we're working on systemic barriers. As we work on them, by the way, we're hiring many underrepresented. I mean, this isn't like we're saying only do one yeah. thing. We just, like any startup, we picked an acute issue to go work on. And um, and we've done about 100,000 people now. Wow. And we're going to keep going. And I'm really proud of the group. And it's very hard. And it starts with, you know, a real key was it starts with the CEOs have to join it. And they, because if they don't authentically believe, like this is a hard thing to do. If they don't well, authentically that's why I believe. Asked you, why, is it, why is it not just you morally, the right question. it's good business. It's got to be. It's good for their business. It's got to be good for business. It's good. And, and I had to prove that to the workforce. So I'm going to take some questions from the audience. Yeah, please. Um, because they're you know, sleeping. They're, they're <laughs> no, <laughs> we have to wake them up. Um, I, I like this question. What do you think about working from home and what should company policies be on this? Oh, I would love to ask the person who wrote it what they think too, though. Maybe uh, they'll, um, and you too, actually. Uh, I have, you start. I, I, well, it will not color have, my answer because I, I write think, about it. So I don't think that it's an all or nothing. I think that there are reasons you need to be in the same room with people. And I find having worked in a remote office far from NPR, there were disadvantages to not being in a room with people. I got very close to the people who were in this office. We would brainstorm together. And I think you lose that when you work from home. But there are times and reasons if you have employees who have children, all kinds of things where you want to be accommodating and make it work. But I think there's kind of a, I don't think it's a, personally, I don't think it's an all or nothing. I think it's a, it's gray. Yes, it is. Okay. I think that's the right answer. And I, um, I even go back in my life and I think, when did I learn the most other than taking risky? I was like apprenticing under people. Right. Yeah. And, and, and so I do believe this blend. Now we've been at it a long time in our company, so it was nothing new. Um, but I do think this idea that if you just dictate to the workforce doesn't work now, I think you have to co-create it with them and people will sort that out. Like I, I was just with someone the other day and he goes, oh no, you know, we were told come any day, but no, no, my team elected to work on, my team works Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. And they had a reason for why it was Monday, they go in together on Monday, right. Tuesday, and Thursday. Um, and so they sorted that out amongst themselves and, you know, cause it doesn't help if one guy goes on on Wednesday and somebody goes on, on you know, now they're not working together. And I, I would, um, be one of the many times I'd get a very negative, it would be a negative story over, it, we did move a whole group of people, we co-located them into centers. What happened was, it was, I think it's instructional for this moment in time, we'd had a big marketing unit that over the years had just splintered to that, we had like two people in every location you could think of all over the world, in all over this country. And they're like, okay, this is really hard to do agile work, this idea of mm -hmm. um, agile design thinking, small teams that work together, different disciplines, you know, do work, check it, fix it early and um, iterate really hard when people are spread all over the place all the time. And so we said, okay, you're going to, we're going to at least co-locate you and you can come in and out, but you got to kind of be in hubs at a minimum. Yeah. And at the time it was a big uproar. And, uh, but honestly, it is the right thing, you know, because there are times you need to do it. And then other times, you know, if you've you got don't. a sick, you've got a parent, oh, that goes without saying, that, you know, you just, you have to make some accommodations for people. And I think there are just times we need, 
need to do it, but there are also times we're human. We like to be together, and I think the that pandemic, is human nature. It is you know, true. But there are jobs, and there are other jobs that could be eighty percent remote, and not, it's okay. Yeah. But but I do think so much of our world and the future world will be about work that you have to apprentice from someone. Interesting. All right, uh, another question here. What do you think about young, diverse professionals trying to pivot in this new economic climate? I think it's good for anyone. I don't know the, the details behind, you know. Yeah. Uh, I think it's a great, okay, this is, in general, another thing I learned. In the toughest of times is the best time to define yourself. And so, mm. like, if I was going to take over a job, a new job, I would love to take it in a bad time. Because I think you get to define who you are in that moment. Um, so whether you're diverse or not diverse, I think it's a very good thing. Look, I'm also an advocate for, it's too late if they're already professional, but I'm an advocate of people going into the STEM fields, science, technology, engineering, math. Why? Not because they have to be an engineer. I think it teaches complex problem solving, and most of the mm. world going forward is going to be that. So yeah. whether or not you practice engineering is a different... I, I'm, I'm all for complex uh, problem solving. And this, is, this second part, there's, this is a two-part okay. question. The second one I think is very important. What is your favorite comfort meal to make? Oh, this has gotten me in trouble many times. Um, my favorite, okay, first off, I don't cook. Um, thank God my husband, we, we were kind of both talking about that, the roles, um, you know, the support systems you have. And um, my, what is my favorite comfort food? I have to say, given a choice, it would probably be a carrot cake. Um, and it would, it would only be the frosting. So yeah, no, that would I, be I it. That would be, I have to say that would, part. That is I the, would never make one myself, but I would certainly eat an entire one. Yeah. Well, maybe your husband cooks. I don't know. Yeah. He is a barbecue man. Uh, yeah. He's a barbecue man. Okay. So what was the tipping point that led to your retirement from IBM? And, um, then how did you get, um, off the, you know, big adrenaline rush of that? Yeah. Good question. There were two, two, um, things that led up. One was that, um, I really felt the company was now on a foundation that it would grow. I mean, I felt I had gotten it to the point that the foundation was in place. We had done a super large acquisition several years prior of, of it was the largest then done ever of a software company. Uh, we had found our way in the cloud. It was the hybrid cloud. We had rebuilt AI several times into a platform and mathematically you could see growth would come. And so I felt it had its foundation, not that more work didn't have to be done, but it was now on, as I would say, I told the workforce, I think on that last day, I said, you're on safe ground now. And, and the second reason was at the same time, I thought I had a great successor ready. And it worked really hard. We had tried to prepare a number of people. And as I say to him, his defining characteristic, and this is why I believe what I believe, is I think he's an Olympic learner. Mm. And, the, and there's... I think I was telling Margaret, horses for courses. I mean, there is, or I was talking to someone today, I was talking about this topic of leaders, you know, in a moment, I think this isn't going to be a moment ahead of us about it's, and it's proven to be true, kind of a permanent crisis time and always learning and having to, now, I did not know there would be COVID, right? I mean, I announced my retirement four months before the world, and now I would then serve through that year, but mm -hmm. it was, um, but once you've prepared someone and they're ready, this time, those two things lined up perfectly perfectly. Yeah. And eight years is a good, you know, it's yeah, it's almost tenor. nine by the time it was nine by the time, nine, I, did, by the time I, 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 I went. So it was, I felt like 
I, I was I had to be the great bridge from how, the past to the future. How did you get over the saying goodbye to the adrenaline rush and you know of of being CEO or were you getting sick yeah. of the adrenaline rush? No, that's hard. I think, and I'm not sure you ever really like. I I write in the book. If you've ever worked there, you love something dearly. I would say it would come in and out of my dreams. <laughs> you know, there wasn't a night I didn't dream and a morning I didn't wake, and then, and it still does that to me yeah. uh, to this day. But I am, I have a new ball, a bullseye now. And my new bullseye is making skills first a, a movement in this country and in this world, because I really believe it will do more to unify the world than anything else. If people believe they and their children have a better future, I think that's what the country I hope needs. I have to talk to the president about this. I have to actually, you know, in, 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 Again, policy over politics. Forget about. I don't. I yeah. talk to them all. No, I know. And you talk to we Trump got the federal government there. to do it. We've yeah. gotten many governments to do this. Um, I think you're seeing more and more happen. I'm actually going to go to D.C. I fly out to D.C. now, and there's a whole summit now on pathways. Because these are pathways for people, mm -hmm. right? Where you start should not determine where you end in this world, and I think that's what this does. Let's see, I, another question here. I serve on the board of a nonprofit growth sec sector that helps people from marginalized communities develop STEM skills. What have you seen as promising approaches uh, to spanning the skills gap and fueling our talent pipeline? Mm, super good. Thank you for doing that work, whoever wrote it. Um, super great work you're doing. Um, one is, I've seen these work best when you work with employers at the same time, so that what you're doing is demand-driven. There are so many non-for-profits out there working so hard, but they're like, hey, I built this skill, come get it. It's just never going to happen. And so begin with the demand. So I like partnership with some number of companies you can find. That would be one thing I find that works. The second is um, I'd focus as much on the soft skills than the hard skills. I've always felt I could build the hard skills. I, it's more about, I can always remember um, one of these schools I told you about, they were called Pathway to Technology Early College High School. Only we could come up with the name that long and then give it an acronym, PTEC. And so President Obama comes and he comes in and first he's, he's coming down the hallway with me and he goes, let's go to the computer lab. I'm like, there's not one. And he looks at me, I'm like, that's not what we're teaching them actually. <laughs> I'm like, I can teach them that later. Here we're teaching them about, you know, how to work with other people, how to collaborate, how to do problem solving. Mm. You know, how do you represent yourself? How do you do work on a team? And like, that's actually what they need to come out of high school, knowing is, as much as they do some, like, I can program this language. So I would just say, whoever that is, if I hope the kids are getting, or people, not just kids. I, I use kids as a really big everybody. Um, we're, are, we're I'm kids. old is why we're, I use the word kids. That's why I use it. I, I hope you're doing as much soft skills. Uh, let's see, we can take one last question here. You are a role model to me as my first internship. Was There's a relative IBM in there. <laughs> um, what was the most difficult conversation you had with the board at IBM, which made you think you were right for the company? Hmm. That's a tough one. Yeah, it is, because I don't... You I, I think what she means, you have one of those moments where you're, you, it was a difficult conversation that made you feel like, yeah, I, I, I am, I'm good for this company. I think it was, e even after I was in the job, I mean, being willing to take tough positions, on, to really positions that you probably took a lot of personal grief for and that they saw that 
you know, you're very resilient. So I don't think it was any one thing. Yeah. Again, I think it's another characteristic you and I talk a lot, or I talk a lot about it in the book is resilience. Yeah. If you're going to change hard things on a micro level about yourself or your kids or your family or, you know, work, um, next to being willing to learn, I put resilience as the next best characteristic in someone. Yeah, and I think it's does a, that make sense? Do you feel, a lot I mean, of sense. man, the world throws a lot of things at you. It does. And I had to learn to not let the, I could listen to critics, but they could not define me. I once, is a good way to end. I had my little nephew, he's now not so little, he's 16 now, but he said to me one day, he's with me and he says, auntie, he says, do you feel bad when sometimes on TV, they're mean to IBM and they're mean to you sometimes. And I said to him, I said, no, Michael, I'm doing what must be done. And I really did feel that way. I felt like this. So we, maybe the answer to that question is, when you have conviction about something, mm -hmm. you know, your eye is on a longer arc and, yeah. and therefore you do what has to be done. Even if, it, and I think I say it in the book, even if you, you know, well, you may not, it may not be your time and tenure that sees it through. Um, but, but I think history judges us all in the long arc of time, right? When they look back. So I hope mo a lot of people who felt, Oh, did I really make a difference? Like you really did make a difference, right? Uh, when you look mm -hmm. back, and and I try to write that about so many people in the book that all these little things they did that really made a difference. So when you wonder, when you help a neighbor do something, when you look out for this, the teacher that stayed after with you, um, I, honest to God, I think in this day, as true as it was then, is true today, that those acts all mean something to people, and that you have that power to do something for someone. Well, I think that is a great spot to end. Um, you know, we're all in this together, aren't we? Um, so um, thanks to Thank Jenny you, Rometty, the former CEO of IBM and author of the new book, Good Power, Leading Positive Change in Our Lives, Work, and World, um, for being here today. It was a pleasure. Wow. Um, and Good Power is available everywhere in books are sold. Um, and thank you guys in the audience yeah, thank there you. In the, in Especially the, for a middle of a day, yes, right? Yes, the I middle mean, of the day, uh, joining us here in the rain, in the, in the storm. Uh, and uh, if you'd like to watch more programs or support the Commonwealth Club's efforts in making both virtual and in-person programming possible, please visit commonwealthclub.org slash events. And thank you, and everyone stay safe. Thank you, guys. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.